Welcome once again. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Great to be with you. My guest today is Diane Godfrey, a veteran court reporter. She's logged thousands of hours taking everything down, every word in many an infamous trial. In a new true crime podcast called All Rise with Diane Godfrey, our intrepid court reporter Diane takes us on a wild ride through her 30-year career in courthouses throughout the Massachusetts judicial system. You're about to get a behind-the-scenes look at what really happens in court, and Diane even relates a story about her interaction close-up and personal with the greatest quarterback in history, Tom Brady. Now, please search any podcast app you have for this title, All Rise with Diane Godfrey, and you won't be disappointed. So, order in the court. It's time to All Rise with our guest, Diane Godfrey, as we go on mic. Welcome, Diane. Great to see you, a fellow podcaster, and congratulations on your new podcast called All Rise. Hi, Jordan. Uh, I've been part of it, uh, helping you produce it, and it's been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. Uh, What will people get by listening? What will they learn from a show like yours? Well, I'm going to let the public in on the the behind-the-scenes nuts and bolts of what goes on in the courthouse, because I would sit at the front of the courthouse And my role as a court reporter was to silently just take down everything that was said in the courtroom. So you're like the eyes and ears of everybody, but you're official. Your job is critical. In my estimation, I was one rung ahead the custodian, but um, (laughs) I was a pot. Seriously, I was like I was a potted plant, quite frankly. Or I was like the American flag and the Commonwealth flag that flank the judge's bench. But, Diane, let's talk about what skill sets are necessary to do that kind of work, because it seems to me an impossible task to take everything in and record it all, but somehow it gets done by professionals. Tell us about the job itself. Well, it doesn't get any easier. Every day is a challenge. And if a word is said, it's just lost forever. It goes up into the, you know. The ether. Exactly. So, but you kind of figure it out. When you say figure it out, I mean, do you have to sometimes guess what it is somebody is mumbling or sometimes intimating, or do you have to just play it by the book? No, you don't guess. You never guess. It's it's not creative writing 101. So you have to, <laughs> you know, a lot of times when you don't think you got a word, in the next sentence or two that the lawyers say, it becomes evident. Because lawyers, God love them. I love them, but they tend to repeat and repeat and repeat the same question over. Yeah, they must learn that in in law school, don't you think? Maybe because they get paid by the hour. I'm only kidding. (laughs) No, but you know, like in a court case, they'll say, is this a mailbox? Yes. Then they'll have another, is this a close, this is a close up of the mailbox. They'll have like six photos of a mailbox Mm. and we're like, we're not stupid. It's a mailbox. Let's move on. Sometimes a mailbox is just a mailbox to quote Groucho Marx or something like that. What exactly is going on when a trial is in play? I mean, obviously we see the trials if we've never been in a courtroom on TV, but what's really going on? I mean, you've got a lot of interplay. You've got the judge, you've got the clerk, you've got bailiffs, you've got all kinds of people involved. Set the scene for a typical, say, criminal trial. What's going on? Well, it looks easy, but there are many moving parts. And to me, the only way I can explain it to people is like a symphony. You have to have every single person in place with that particular instrument or it won't fly. That's why judges get wild if one person is late. Because if you're missing one juror or you're missing me or you don't have enough um, court officers, you know, because due to, you know, staff shortages, because they need to be safe and they have to have so many court officers in each courtroom, then it doesn't fly and you have to wait. 
And delay is the worst, right? Because that just... Hurry up and wait is the mantra of the court. Right. And you say judges go wild uh, without mentioning any specific names. Uh, Give me an example of a wild action by a judge. Well, I didn't mean a derogatory. I just mean um, they keep their feet to the fire. And in my opinion, and this is just an opinion with all respect to the great judges in Massachusetts... I have the general feeling I've been there long enough in the courthouse to see how it used to be. And it doesn't even resemble the way the court ticks now. And the way that it used to be, it was at an even flow and there was no like hysteria. And now they push cases so fast. You don't even have a time time to have a cup of coffee. It's crazy. It, It defies logic. And, you know, I think of when I was a kid, when my mother said, when would say, when is supper going to be ready? And she'd say, I can't push the stove. When it's ready, it's ready. You can't push trials. And I don't know why the new idea with judges is to push. You can't do it. You just can't. Do you think it's connected to the fast pace of everyday life and communications and everything is hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, do it yesterday? You think it's part of that, just the culture? Well, I think maybe people did drag their feet yesteryear a little bit. And I understand that they want, they're they're always conscious of giving the taxpayer their bang for their buck. They really are. And they're conscious of that. And they try not to waste citizens' time that come in, the citizens that are sitting on jurors. They're very, very careful to try to be respectful of that. But they, I think they push so quickly because Every X number of years, we get a new chief justice. It's just like when Trump just went out and Biden got in, and now there's a new cabinet. Mm. The court works the same way. So when there's a new chief cook and bottle washer up there, if that chief cook and bottle washer tells all the judges that work for him or her to put the pedal to the metal, they do. And it's to a fault. It's to the detriment of everybody, I think. Mm. Diane, does a judge lean on on somebody like you, a court reporter, for help often during the course of a case? Uh, Absolutely. Do you have an example that comes to mind where it was critical that you supplied information for a particular case or a particular moment? Oh, sure. Yes. Um, What will happen is naturally the whole, you know, flavor of a court is discord. Somebody, it's an adversarial to me, it's a locus of discontent. Can I put it that way? A Nobody's locus. Uh, let me quote you on that. That's beautiful. I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> Nobody wants to be there, Jordan. And it's a necessary part of life. So you're there and, you know, it's this guy said this thing. It, I don't know that they're fighting over money or it's a criminal matter. It always comes down to, well, um, well Your Honor, this morning, so-and-so on the witness stand said such and such. And the judge said, well, I don't remember it that way. They will enlist me to read out loud to them what was said. In, in a sense, you're the, the instant replay that we see on the sports field, right? I mean, here's what actually yeah. was said. Yeah. So there's no doubting the truth here. And, and that puts you in a very awesome, uh, responsible position. You know what? It's a grave responsibility, Jordan. I'm not, yeah. I'm just saying, I mean, I don't mean for me, I mean, it is. And you know, all the court reporters I work with, we're the most misunderstood bunch in the whole place. <laughs> and I think that everybody thinks we're making a million dollars and I think they resent us, but we're not. And it's like, it's really, really hard. And, you know, I would, you know, today, everything's instantaneous, everything. And if you were to sit the average person in a chair and say, don't move, for two hours, do not move for a solid two hours. 
you can't deviate from what's going on. And for two hours nonstop, you're taking down words. It's unbelievable. Can I ask how you got into this in the first place? Because you're a natural at this. You're very talented. But how? what brought you to the field in the first place? What brought me to the field? I had to get off the beach. I was in my <laughs> 20s. I was in my late 20s. And all I was doing was going to the beach and living at home. I had one bill in my life paying my, my car payment. And it was like, I'm not getting any younger. And to tell you the truth, I was sick of working on the weekends. I was a waitress. You made a a lot of money, but it was so fun. So one day, my father came in and he said, I saw something today that looked interesting, and I think it has your name on it. And I'm like, huh? And he had been in a courtroom, and he saw a stenographer, and he said, I think that's you. So naturally, you buck the system because your father said it, you know. But I I thought it was kind of interesting, and oddly enough, a mere couple weeks later, my brother walks in with a girlfriend who was just about to graduate court reporting school. So she brought her machine in. I asked her and she showed me everything. And I said, I think I like this. This is very cool. And oddly enough, she graduated, lasted six months at the job, decided she hated court reporting and never looked back. She did something else. And I ended up being the court reporter. It's so interesting that you talk about being a waitress. And I really give credit to my years as a waiter in my teens and early 20s, helping me understand workflow, understand multitasking. You must have that kind of inner mindset where you can put things in order because you're very detailed. And when we correspond, your your messaging is very precise and to the point, which is so helpful. Was that you as a kid uh, growing up in school? Were you particular? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because your attention to detail is what I'm talking about. seems yes. to be very, very yes. important. Yes. So that got you into the system. And uh, you remember your first case, What how, how nervous you might have been or how excited you were? Uh, well, first of all, um, I took a an internship, you know, naturally they're unpaid at a, a courthouse here out in the suburbs. And I wasn't getting anywhere because the older court reporters had no interest in really helping me. I mean, they were they weren't picking me out of a crowd. I think they were old and they were kind of just coasting towards you. They didn't want to be bothered. And there was one lady that was really mean. But anyway, we're not going to go there. But (laughs) there was a guy who was a love. Why you have like men? And I said, I don't know. But anyway, he (laughs) started his. I have a theory on that, but that's another day. Oh, that's a new podcast. We'll get you yeah, back for it that. Yeah, it is. Like, I think, like, women are meaner. Like, for some reason, I think men are nicer to men, like, as friends. And I think women are more catty, but we're not going to go there. You'd never hear a man say, did you see him? He said he was a size 10, but he squeezed into an 8. Yeah, men don't he even know what fat. those sizes mean, so don't even ask us. <laughs> no, I have no idea. I mean? 10, 12, 1. Like, women can yeah. be mean. I don't know why. So you had a but- good mentor? Is that what you're saying? You had a good male yes. mentor? Yes, I did. And you know what? What I found really interesting, what I found really interesting about him was he began his profession with a pad of paper and a pencil. He would sit in the courtroom and take old-fashioned dictation. That's crazy. That's that's crazy just like in a good way. That's stenography in the in the earliest truest sense, right? Where you Yes. Like you know when you shorthand. see the old movies? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. The secretary. Yeah, Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe, Sylvia, take a note for my client, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yes, but that's how this guy started. I was just, I marveled at that. One of the things about the podcast, which is called All Rise with Diane Godfrey, and I urge you to check it out. People love 
anything that has to do with crime, true crime, uh, the law, it's it's gaining in popularity. One thing that's interesting is the out-of-the-ordinary experiences, the eruptions, the personalities that you come across when you do hundreds of trials. That's the essence of your soon-to-be-published book, I'm sure, uh, all the crazy stuff. Yes. Can you give us a few examples, what people will hear on the podcast, the kind of stuff that you're, you're digging yeah, up? Yeah, I can, Jordan. Um, you know, I just want to, it's not like television, but, you know, like every minute isn't like packed with fireworks. <laughs> we have many, many days and many weeks. It's just, you know, it's like watching paint dry. A lot yeah. of it's very boring, necessary, but it's right. very boring. Right. But we have a lot of things that have happened. I think I've seen everything. I've seen countless brawls in the back of the court. When I say all out brawls, but the court officers are fabulous, fabulous. They're trained and they quell anything the best they can. But I'll tell you something, they get a run for their money. They're up against it, just like police officers are, but they handle it like champs. I've never felt unsafe with them. They're the most terrific team, the men and the women. I'm glad you said that because we take them for granted uh, when we watch the television shows. Even I remember Judge Wapner with his guy, uh, the big guy in the suit and with the badge. It almost became a a caricature, but they're so important. And I know there's some dangerous people and then some dangerous friends of dangerous people. So they're they're critical. Give us an example of a brawl story if you have one. I remember one time I couldn't believe this woman got off you know, she got off the hook for stabbing her husband to death. It was like a self-defense. She was, you know, mm-hmm. not guilty. And as soon as the judge left the bench and didn't even have like her body back in the judge's chambers, she and a woman from her ex-husband's family got in a huge fist fight in the back. To me, if I just got found not guilty of self-defense murder, I would like shut my trap and get out of uh, there. Yeah, yeah. Be, and run and never look back. Right, move to another state and drink champagne. My, exactly, I'd have my rosary beads. I'd be saying a novena. <laughs> I'd be like, are you kidding? And she decided, and everyone decided to get in on it. I mean, I've seen countless women and men collapse after their mm. daughter or son has been found guilty and they're going to jail for the rest of their life. Parents can't take it sometimes. And then we have to call EMS and they have to get them off the floor and bring them to the hospital. It's kind of like this in church. It's kind of like this at a wedding. People used to dress with some sense of formality when they went to court. Is that not the case anymore? And People show up in... Oh, Jordan, are you kidding me? Listen, <laughs> I know you don't have free time on your hands, but if you ever get a minute, okay... Go at eight o'clock outside of the door of the court and watch what people, witnesses, well, they're lucky to get the witness. If they're wearing a burlap sack, who cares? You know what I mean? As long as they're covered. They're lucky. They go through great lengths to get witnesses in there. So they'll take them as they see them. Mm. But jurors look like they're a, a a lot of them, either they're going to go rake leaves or B, they're going to the beach. And when I started the job, I remember judges saying they'd point to someone and they'd say, go home and take the sweatpants off and come back. And the person would. Today, you can't say that. And I think it has to do with like gender bias and, you know, all kinds of legal. You can't comment right. on someone's look anymore. Right, right. I'll tell you one thing. As a one-time juror on a criminal case, uh, I gained so much more respect for the process and really took it seriously. I know the old saying is, oh, what can I do to get out of jury duty? But I, I'm proud that I served. And 
really learned a lot. Do you get a sense that jurors still feel that way, that the jurors that you see sitting there? Okay, Jordan, I'm going to give it to you straight up what I see. I don't know if it's accurate, but this is what I see. I have impaneled, which means picked thousands of cases over the years, thousands. And I have listened to thousands of people speak privately to the judge, potential jurors. I think most of them are forthright and earnest. I don't think any of them are really, very seldom is someone trying to pull the judge's um, leg, like trying to get out of, like once in a while, you'll have someone come up and say, I hate all black people. I Just hate to get all- out of it, right, yeah. Hardly ever happens. It hardly ever happens. Most people really want to do their civic duty, but I'm going to tell you where the rub comes in. They can't afford it. They can't afford to be out of their job for two and three weeks. The Commonwealth will pay you after the third day, $50 a day. Yeah, that doesn't really help. It was $50 a day in 1991 when I started the job. In 2021, it's still $50. My sister recently served on an Arizona jury. And if you are employed, Arizona will pay you $350 a day to sit as a juror. Hmm. So, you know, people have such anxiety because they're afraid this one trial will make them crash financially. And they really want to serve and they're really mixed up over it. It's so interesting. Here we are in Massachusetts, where this podcast emanates from, and it's the bastion of liberty, and it's where the country began and all that, and, you know, our court system is legendary. We not only have that going on, but we also have pretty hard conditions in many of the courthouses, right? And I I know you speak about that on occasion. Well, some of them are gorgeous, and some of them are ramshackle. I'll give you two examples. One day, and this isn't the fault of the court. It's because it's the city of Boston. Yeah, right. It's it's the government uh, overseeing the, the legislature even, right, giving money. But anyway, go ahead. Well, two every two weeks, they have an exterminator in the Boston courthouse. It's just the way it is. And they do a pretty good job. But sometimes I've been typing, and I see an animal. I don't know what it is. It looks like a gerbil. It comes out of the heating vent and just scoots, scoots by my desk and goes into the other. I I think you're being kind to call it a gerbil. (laughs) I don't know what it is. It looked like a gerbil. And then another time I was in the bathroom. It's one of those bathrooms that it's a one person bathroom and a huge cockroach was there. I made a video of it. I still have it. And it was just amazing. I couldn't Mm. believe how fast they run. Mm. Another time when I worked down in Brockton court, the court reporter room had a room adjacent to it. And that was the evidence room. And on hot days, it would smell. Oh, and I was told it was because there was, you know, biological evidence in there. There was like, you know, blood that had been on a shirt. And that's what we were smelling. And we used to have rats down there. And I went to Walmart one day and got a bunch of stuff for the rat, the mice. So, you know, it is. It is what it is. I want to ask you about the the experiences you've had sitting, doing your job, being a professional and your feet, just a few feet away from someone accused of capital murder, in some cases, like the Grenadier case, and I'll have you just tease that because that's one of your podcasts, yeah. you're, you're talking about uh, uh, perhaps a sociopath sitting 10 feet away. What is that like, and can you recall any examples? Well, you know, when I started the job, I thought they'd look like a murderer. They don't look like murderers. They look like the guy that you're going to see this afternoon if you go to Burger King and he's behind you in line. They, they're ordinary. But you know what? A lot of them aren't sociopaths. It was just a one-shot, unfortunate deal. I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but to me, 
people are complicated and they're a lot of them aren't totally evil. They just make a bad mistake and they find themselves in the soup and there they are. But there are those who are notorious and they are legendary. They become uh, the stuff of novels and books. And you've had your run in with a few of those in terms of your yes, job. Yes, I have. Well, you know what I did one time? I was on the James Cater case, infamous case, Mary Lou Arruda, 1978. Oh, I remember that remember very that? much. He yes. hung her from the, I'm going to do a podcast on that. They found her two months later, and she her t- she was tied to a tree in Freetown State Park. Mind you, the Commonwealth, all the years later, brought in the tree. It had her blood on it. Mm. And her his car, they brought it right into the bottom of the courthouse. They drove it in, and we went down and all looked at it. But um, I decided in that trial that I was going to look him in the eye. Don't ask me why. I just had to. He gave me the most menacing sk- stare that you can ever imagine. We locked eyes. And he looked at me like he wanted to chop me up. I'm not kidding you. And I was so scared, I looked away. But that case shook Massachusetts to its core. I remember it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he had tried to do that before to another girl. He had already been in prison for the same thing. And he was let out, and then he grabbed Mary Lou Arruda. One of those things that, you know, headline-driven cases one doesn't know what it's really like to be in the same room with somebody like that. Let's talk about lawyers for a second. You've also been having worked with thousands of cases in your in your past among some of the best and some of the not so best. <laughs> well, I love lawyers. I mean, the prosecutors are lawyers. There are there's a tremendous group of, you know, people that are commonwealth prosecutors and you know, by and large, I didn't realize this till I worked there. They don't make a heck of a lot of money, the prosecutors, you know. Yes, I do know they that. They don't. Yes. When the Girl Scouts come around to sell the cookies, they can't afford to buy a box of cookies because they're still paying student loans. And it's a hard job, but it's exhilarating, and they get a lot of, you know, um, you know Satisfaction experience. Satisfaction and, and experience. But, you know, a lot, I've also noticed a lot of them are from wealthy families, and they can afford to take the job with the low pay. Well, a lot of our political, yeah, a lot of our political leaders starting out uh, did work in the DA's office and so forth. Yeah. Uh, you know, even people like John Kerry. I mean, there's a lot of them that uh, did a lot of that. Uh, but you've seen some of the uh, the big time law firm dudes and gals and the small time. What about the public defenders? We often hear that they're underpaid and understaffed and have a pretty challenging role. Everyone is entitled to a defense according to the Constitution. What What's your take on public defense in Massachusetts? And, you know, you can't lose sight of that because, to me, um, no matter how heinous someone is alleged to have committed a crime, you can't jump, you can't jump to conclusions. You have to hear the whole thing. You have to remember that. It's so hard, but you have to remember that. But um, everyone deserves representation. And the defense bar in Massachusetts, the people I know, they're they're all in. It's their whole life, mm. and they're they're tremendous. Telling yeah, I've I've interviewed many uh, in my other roles uh, as hosts of other podcasts, and they are they are the unrecognized uh, champions of of justice. Absolutely. Let's oh, talk. Yeah. Let's get back to judges for a second, only to have some fun. Uh, they judges are interesting people, obviously, as we all are. Are, are, some of them have peculiar shtick, I would imagine, that you've noted over the years. I mean, I remember there was one judge, Rudy Gass, I think, who used to drive his bike every day 
to and from the courthouse a long time ago. But that's not a big deal. Do you have no. do, do, you, do you know any uh, judges who are have particular idiosyncrasies that you recall? Well, Judge Chernoff used to ride his bike every day to and from the court, and Judge Patrick King used to jog every day to and from the court. And um, he was in tremendous shape. What a he should have been running the show. What a brain he was. He was awesome. What a great judge. Uh, he's he has been off the bench for many years now, though. Um, but I know one. Do you remember Judge Volterra? Long time ago. Yeah, not vaguely familiar with the name. He used to bring his dog on the bench. See, that's what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, he used to bring his, <laughs> and the dog was as nice as pie. Never barked. Or he sat right next to the judge. He'd always bring his his dog up on the bench. But um, there was some. There was one judge. I'm not going to say his name. He's still around. He's elderly because I saw him somewhere about a year ago. He used to. I don't know if you know this, but. Every day when the courthouse begins, like when the court begins, this what's called the cry, and the what's called the cry, and the court officer stands up and says, "Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye! All persons having to do before the honorable," and it goes on. This judge used to rate the quality of the cry in front of the whole courtroom. The poor court officer would turn four sheets of shades of red, and he meant it. He wasn't joking. He was mean. And he'd say, up, oh, that was about a three today. Oh, my gosh. Sort of like American Idol, like Simon he, Cowell. Yes. And he did it all the time. And he did it to be mean. And I have no idea why. But he was legendary for doing that. <laughs> and, you know, half the time they'll forget a word or they'll forget. a. They get nervous, you know. And it's still the cry works. And I know they're they're fudging it up. But I don't think I could do any better in front of a courtroom. But sometimes they read it off a card, which is helpful. Big yeah. card. Every camera is focused on the judge at that dramatic moment when verdict is brought down or sentencing is happening, right? I mean, that's that's where the focus is at that point, I would imagine. Yeah, but they, you know, the media is allowed in state court. They're not allowed in federal court. So mm-hmm. if you ever watch the news when there's a federal case, you just see like that rendering. It looks like a yeah. caricature. Yeah. But in Massachusetts, they'll allow, you know, it has to be ironed out beforehand. You get permission from the judge and one camera is allowed in the courtroom due to space constraints, but also it's silly to have five cameras loaded up in the back of the courtroom. So they allow one per day and that one cameraman will, you know, there's a feed to every like channel four, channel five, Mm -hmm. NECN, Fox, you know, they all get the same feed. And speaking of that, uh, you became close because you can't help it with certain media members, certain press people over the years, I would imagine. There are, that's a beat for some of our reporters, isn't it? Yeah. Great people. Great people. They're doing their job. It's not easy. And um, they're in there, you know, getting the getting the scoop. Well, we're glad that you're doing the podcast because there are so many great stories. But one of the things that we just wanted to mention before closing out is that this industry and this career is morphing because of technology. Is that a good thing or a not so good thing? I would imagine not so good for people in it. Yeah. I, well, to tell you the truth, it's good for certain reasons. But I think as a complete Um, way to take the record it's a disaster on many levels and I think I can say that I have I'm making an informed decision because I've been in that courtroom 30 years and there's no way you can make a good record without one person dedicated solely to the record in that courtroom 
Yeah, we were talking uh, off air about the gestures and the harumphs and the nods and all the little things that you wonder how a computer could match someone of your caliber. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. You don't know what's going on, Jordan. (laughs) I know when there's a lull, what's going on. You know what I mean? Right. And then you hear like paper, you know, wrinkle. Oh, you know what the best is? God love the clerks. When they decide they're going to print something on the printer and all of a sudden the printer goes, I mean, and then you have the Boston police cars outside. You have the fire. You have a, a, a jackhammer. You know, all half the time when you're sitting there, you'll hear a god-awful fight outside. Outside. Thinking, yes. <laughs> you're like, what just happened? Someone obviously is disgruntled that just exited the courthouse. And you'll hear screaming and yelling. And one time, this was a long time ago, I was in my office on the third floor, which I was ousted out of. You know that movie Office Space? Of course. That was me. Oh, you, Diane, you can just go in this corner. You were the man with the stapler, huh? I was the person that was, oh, Diane, this my is going to be a good spot. Oh, Diane. <laughs> well, you know, at least you so, didn't blow up the courthouse. That's We can safely say exactly. that. Exactly. Okay. But I ended up on the sidewalk because they got rid of all statewide court reporters. So I did end up on the sidewalk. But this was when I had a good office. The Boston police... God love them, decided they wanted a spot in the courthouse. So they decided my office would be the spot. So they're in my office to this day. But the thing is, I didn't realize how badly the heat worked in there. It didn't really work. And when I got the new office, I had heat. So it was a bonus. But um, I do digress. What did you ask me? No, (laughs) it doesn't matter. We were talking about uh, oh. The job and whether or not uh, technology is is outflanking the human. Oh, aspect. and that and that led into what I was going to tell you when I was in that office. Yes, that was the office I met Tom Brady in. But that's another story. Well, that's but, a good um, story. Wow, How, oh, what was I, it? What I, was that all about? I think it's fitting. I thought of it because of last night he won the Super Bowl again with the Bucks. Um, well, I'll just tell you, I was in the office and I heard a commotion and I couldn't see because of the big air conditioner in the window. And there was a stabbing underneath my window. But that's I've seen three stabbings in 30 years there. But um, what I was going to say about Tom Brady is he came, I think it was in 2010, on a civil case to be a um, a witness in a something to do with a guy that had bypass surgery because he was heavy. His name was Weiss. Oh, yeah, one of the coaches. That's right. Yes. Yes. At MGH. I remember that. Yes. I think it went, it didn't go so well. So somehow it ended up in- Charlie, Charlie Weiss was his name. Yes. Brady was called as a witness. And I'm not kidding you, Jordan. You would think Jesus Christ himself arrived on earth. And he came and I saw men that I thought were sane adults turned into putty. You have no idea. And it was like Michael Jackson came or it was it was insane. And they finally had to take him and place him privately in a room until it was his turn to testify. And what were the chances? They put him in the room next to me. It was an it was an office that was unoccupied at the time. But I had a side door. It was like a suite. And I knew he was in there and I was all by myself. And I said, should I open the door and say something to him? Nah. I was scared. I don't know what I was scared of. I finally mustered the courage to go over and open the door. And there he was leaning against the desk. First of all, he's delicious looking. Oh, my God, he's gorgeous. (laughs) But he, my right hand to God, what I say, this is what I gleaned from it. I had never seen a guy dressed up in a suit and and a beautiful shirt that didn't 
like button the top shirt and wear a tie. It was open. I hadn't seen that look ever. Mm -hmm. So that's what I kept focusing on. I'm like, okay, it looks good, but I've never seen this before. Maybe this is the new style. He was shy. He was absolutely shy. He was delightful. He was so pleasant and so kind. And of course, I asked him if he wanted something to drink. He asked me my name. He asked me what I did there. I told him about court reporting. He was fascinated. It was great. But the thing was, did I take his picture? No. Did I ask him for an autograph? No. But I had a good five to seven minutes alone with him. It was a, what were the chances of that? Well, here's the thing. You didn't take his picture, get his autograph, but you just told the story on an internationally listened to podcast. So the world will know that you met Tom Brady and had a tete-a-tete, <laughs> which is okay in my book. He would never even remember it, of course. But Doesn't you matter. You do. And I, now I know the story, which is great. You know how it was interrupted, Jordan? A clerk, a criminal clerk made his way down, somehow got word that he was in this room. And he knew the room was locked, Brady was in, but he knew that if he went in my office and went through the side door, he'd get to Brady, and he did. Sounds he like- came with like a football. He said, can you sign this? And that was the end of it. Then the court offices whisked Brady away. Sounds like an episode of uh, Plaza Suite from Neil Simon, Act Two. Uh- <laughs> Well, listen, uh, this has been great fun. Let's promote the podcast. It's called All Rise with Diane Godfrey. It's on all platforms. And I'm I'm part of this podcast helping Diane. I love her to death. And I'm enjoying the process. We're getting a lot of great guests and it's really been fun. And Diane, thank you so much. We will hear you on your own podcast and cheer you on. Thanks very, very much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm so excited for everyone to come and take a listen to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. Once again, check out All Rise with Diane Godfrey, her new podcast, available on all podcast platforms. Just search All Rise with Diane Godfrey. I want to thank, as always, Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, who handles all of the technical and publishing needs, as well as my business partner in crime, Ken Carberry, here at Chart Productions, where we produce the podcast. My website, jordanrich.com. You can find out all about podcasting, voiceover, live radio, and my book called On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, which is available now. Until next time, this is Jordan, as always, saying be well so you can do good. Take care.